So I don't have a handout again today. Um, I didn't think what we're going to be dealing with is necessarily uh, something that we need to have a handout on. This is going to be a much more informal kind of Sunday school lesson uh, than what we've been dealing with with covenant theology. But I want to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 14, verses 5 to 6 is what we'll read for our opening Bible reading here. And last week I made uh, the announcement, I guess, at the end of the lesson that this week we were going to be studying uh, the topic of Lent. Should I, as a Christian, observe Lent? Well, I found out last week that some of you had never even heard of such a thing, and you thought I was talking about dryer Lent. Um, This Lent is spelled L-E-N-T, and what you find in your dryer is L-I-N-T. So this is L-E-N-T, Lent. Um, But let's read Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. Romans 14, when you hear that, you immediately are thinking this is the, the passage of Scripture that perhaps in a more full way than any other passage of Scripture deals with the concept and the idea of Christian liberty and charity one with another. So that in context, we read Romans 5, I'm sorry, Romans 14 verse 5. Paul says here, one man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So we'll end there at verse 6. We have good warrant from the Scriptures, I believe both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that it is appropriate for us as Christians to set aside special times and special seasons to focus our attention in a more particular and and focused way on the Lord. And so we have examples in the Scriptures of the New Testament church doing that. Uh, The church in Antioch, before they sent out Paul and Barnabas, it says that they fasted and prayed. They did that that collectively as a church. They fasted and prayed, and then after that, they sent out Paul and Barnabas. I don't think we're to understand that that was just the leadership of that congregation. Uh, I believe it, it is legitimate for us to understand that the congregation as a whole took part in that fasting and praying. It came from the top down. There was an announcement one Sunday morning, we're going to fast and we're going to pray. And it was organized and it was planned. And they did that. And then we see the Apostle Paul fasting. We see other examples of fasting and praying. And normally, I think exclusively, it does have fasting and prayer linked together. We have in the Old Testament, God setting aside special feast days, special days of worship that were different from other days. They were referred to as Sabbaths, although it wasn't the seventh day of the week Sabbath. It wasn't their worship holy day Sabbath, but it was a holy day, a day set apart. 
And so this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 14 when he says one day esteem, one man esteemeth a day and one God doesn't esteem a day. They're not talking New Testament context here. We're not talking about Sunday. This isn't, well, somebody says you should keep the fourth commandment. Another person says you don't have to keep the fourth commandment. That's not what Paul has in view. What Paul has in view here is those special days set apart for a special memorial, a special commemoration. And so, for example, uh, you might know some that don't celebrate Christmas. Uh, they believe Christmas is a pagan thing, and they, they don't celebrate Christmas. Well, I'm sorry you're missing out on Christmas, but if, if that's your conscience, and you don't esteem that day, you don't, you don't in your own mind want to set that day apart as a special time to remember the Lord's birth, okay, fine. Uh, some are death on Easter. They argue that it comes from uh, the pagan god Estar, uh, a, a pagan uh, religious festival, and that the Roman Catholic Church just kind of whitewashed this whole thing and said, hey, well, let's celebrate the G- resurrection of Jesus instead and say it's pagan origin, so I'm not going to celebrate that. And so they don't participate in that. Okay, fine. But don't get on me for wanting to esteem a day And I don't get on you for not esteeming a day. Does that make sense? So that's where we are on that. So how does that fit into this whole thing of Lent? Uh, Like I said just a moment ago, uh, I learned last week that some have never even heard of it. Others are just far more casually aware of it. Uh, You may have coworkers that have talked about Lent. Uh, You may, on the way to church, have seen signs on different church marquee things out front, uh, talking about the Lenten season uh, and special services that are being held for Lent. And so what is Lent? What are we talking about here? Well, Lent is a 40-day period of fasting that begins on Ash Wednesday and goes all the way through to Easter. It's 40 days that are purposefully set aside for devotion and prayer to the Lord. Now, a little bit more as far as the history of it all, uh, the day before Ash Wednesday is known as what? Does anybody know this? It's called Fat Tuesday, right? So in New Orleans, they celebrate Mardi Gras. Well, that's a French word. Uh, Mardi, that's not the French word for Tuesday, but that's where it comes from. And the, the gras from gross is the word for fat. So it's Fat Tuesday. Well, the Western churches, so if we go way back in church history, the Western churches, uh, so what we know as the Roman Catholic Church, basically, uh, and other Western churches, they begin Lent on Ash Wednesday. The Eastern churches, so the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the, the Orthodox churches that are more associated with the, the East, they begin the Monday seven weeks before Easter. So theirs is a bit longer than 40 days. But let me read you what the Catholic Encyclopedia has to say about Lent. Uh, It says this, The real aim of Lent is above all else to prepare men for the celebration of the death and resurrection of Christ. The better the preparation, the more effective the celebration will be. One can effectively relive the mystery only with purified mind and heart. 
The purpose of Lent is to provide that purification by weaning men from sin and selfishness through self-denial and prayer, by creating in them the desire to do God's will and to make his kingdom come by making it come first of all in their hearts. Another article, the writer says this, that Lent is a period of preparation to celebrate the Lord's resurrection at Easter. During Lent, we see the Lord in prayer, I'm sorry, we seek the Lord in prayer by reading sacred scripture, we serve by giving alms, and we practice self-control through fasting. We are called not only to abstain from luxuries during Lent, but to a true inner conversion of heart as we seek to follow Christ's will more faithfully. Now, you read that from the Catholic Catechism, you you read this other writer, and that all sounds great. We, We want to be more devoted to the Lord. If you're a Christian, you want to serve Jesus. If you're a Christian, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is... You know, the, the hinge of human history, it is what literally accomplished the salvation of our souls. And so why in the world would you not want to set aside special time to remember such a thing? It makes all the sense in the world, and it seems as if it is a great idea. Well, if you study Lent and you go back to some of the original practices of Lent, you'll come to learn that originally it didn't have anything to do with Easter at all. It didn't have anything to do with the resurrection of Christ. Some claim that the practice of Lent goes all the way back to the days of the apostles, that in the church, the writings of the early church fathers, uh, they mention this. But Lent was really not formalized until the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD. It was originally a form of penance that was imposed upon two categories of people, One, it was imposed upon those that were coming to be baptized. So these are adult converts to Christianity that were coming for baptism. They were to prepare themselves for baptism through a period of 40 days of fasting. Now, the number 40 is, I think in your mind, obviously something of a biblical number. We find many... uh, patterns in the scripture of 40 days, uh, Christ in the wilderness, chief of which uh, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And this concept of an idea of 40 is not just something, you know, a number drawn out of a hat. It's a number that makes sense even biblically uh, for 40 days. And so they were to prepare themselves for this baptism for 40 days. The other category of people that referred to was for those that had been put under some kind of church discipline or had been barred from communion. And before they could come back to take communion, they went through this 40 days of heart preparation that involved fasting and and praying uh, for 40 days before they came back to the communion table. And during that 40 days, those penitent ones, uh, whether for baptism or to be restored back to communion, would wear sackcloth and they would sprinkle ashes on themselves as a public show, a public sign uh, to others of their sorrow for sin 
in their repentant heart before the Lord. Well, during the ninth century, that public practice of penance, uh, the sackcloth and the ashes and all that business, um, really just died out. And it was replaced, there was you know, a gradual thing obviously, but it was eventually replaced with the practice of Ash Wednesday. And so at that point, all of the faithful were to go to uh, the cathedral on Ash Wednesday and they were to have ashes put on them as a public show of uh, humiliation, uh, a sign of their own need for humiliation before the God of heaven, their repentant, penitent heart before God. And so the priest would put ashes on the forehead of that one that would come. And so literally in the sign of a cross, ashes, and it was put on the forehead of that individual. Well, you fast forward a long way through church history. This is a very brief historical overview. But you fast forward all the way through church history, and you find that during World War II, the Roman Catholic Church made major changes. Previous to that, the rules for fasting were very, very strict. Uh, Those that were participating in Lent, and all were to participate in Lent, uh, those that were participating were allowed one meatless meal per day. You were not allowed to have any meat. One meatless meal per day is all that was allowed, with the exception being of Sundays, On Sundays, you did not have to fast, but all the other days of the week, you had to fast. Well, the Roman Catholic Church, like I said, during World War II, made major changes to that, and they really relaxed anything that would look like what you think about as a fast, and that really is not a thing. Many of you uh, grew up understanding and and remembering um, specials at restaurants on Friday, and they would serve fish, right? So fish Fridays. And that was the Roman Catholic um, loophole to meat. You couldn't eat meat, so you couldn't eat a cow, a pig, or a chicken, but you could have fish. That was part of the uh, fasting loophole. And so up until even modern times nowadays, uh, there are some that during Lent they abstain from all meat except for Friday and they have fish on Fridays uh, during the time of Lent. There are others that still observe a more strict fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Uh, and, and other than that, they would you know, really just eat normally and no different. It's just on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, they would fast during the day and have one meal in the evening normally after sundown. But what most have done nowadays, and this is where the practice of Lent is more popular and and the way most of you would know it if you have friends that practice Lent, most have replaced that traditional food fast with a fast of something else. And so the way that you'll hear people talk about Lent is with the question, what have you given up for Lent? And so you'll have people that give up chocolate for Lent. You'll have people that give up dessert. You'll have people that will give up coffee. You'll have people that instead of giving up will, I'm going to walk two miles every day. 
I'm going to um, help at the soup kitchen every week. I'm going to, you know, whatever. They, they do something, whether it's giving up or adding to some other work of benevolence. But for most, it is a, a giving up of something. Uh, what am I going to sacrifice in order to have this heart devotion to the Lord? And that's the way Lent is practiced really for the most part uh, among anybody that I know. You, you might know some different, but that is the common practice nowadays. And so if we look at this and step back from what it is and how it's practiced and where it came from and what its origins are, um, when we go to analyze Lent and ask ourselves this question, should I be observing Lent, then I think we need to look at it from a couple different perspectives. Some will just throw their hands up and, you know, call it Romish popery and just walk away from the whole thing and be done. It's like, well, no, this has no credence whatsoever. Um, you know, no Protestant should ever take part in this. Well, slow down just a little bit because just because Rome believes it doesn't mean it's heresy. Right? Not everything they believe is heresy. They believe in the virgin birth, and, you know, we're not going to call that, you know, Romish popery. They believe in the deity of Christ, and we're not going to call that Romish popery. Right? They, they do believe orthodox things, uh, they're wrong on justification. They're wrong on the most important thing, obviously. And they're very, 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 very dangerous because of that and to be avoided because of that. But just because Rome teaches it or believes it, you know, we don't just walk away only for that reason. That, uh, that is an immature and straw man argument uh, against the practice of Lent. Because, as I said, you look at Romans 14... One man esteemeth a day or days above another. Another person doesn't esteem those days. So is it sinful to practice Lent? And my answer to that question is no. It's not sinful to practice Lent. It's not a sin to do. Is it wise to practice Lent? And my answer to that question is it depends. It depends. And so what I want to do to finish up here is look at what I believe to be faulty presuppositions surrounding the practice and the whole concept of Lent. I believe it is built on these faulty presuppositions, and because of that, my recommendation would be that Lent is not something that you should be involved in and something that you should practice. But let's look at these presuppositions. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. The first presupposition is that the practice of Lent is traced back all the way to the teachings of the apostles. Okay, fine. If it is, then, you know, we have some merit there. But um, being a Judaizer and being a Pharisee is traced all the way back to the days of the apostles. So just because something is traceable back to the days of the apostles does not automatically give it credence and say, well, we as a New Testament church, we ought to do this too. But let's look at what Christ himself said, okay? Uh, Matthew 6, look at verse number 16. Christ had something to say about fasting, and he says this in Matthew 6, verse 16. So this is in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously. And he says, moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces 
that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, it's very difficult to reconcile what Christ says in verse 18 with showing up to work with ashes on your forehead, right? It's, it's hard to reconcile that thou mayest appear unto men not to fast, but unto thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. It's difficult to reconcile sackcloth and ashes, a, a public display that's telling everybody, hey, look at me, I am participating in this fast with what Christ says in verse 18. So the presupposition that this practice goes all the way back to you know, the teachings of Christ into the days of the apostles, well, no, not really, because Christ never talked of fasting in that way. Now, were there public fasts? Well, I mentioned one already in Acts when the church in Antioch fasted and prayed before they sent out Paul and Barnabas. But I don't think that undermines what Christ has said here. Because while, yes, it was fasting in public, if you will, it was in public only in the sense that it was in that local church body and they were all doing it together for a specific purpose. Christ also says, or I'm sorry, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 7 about husbands and wives that they are not to um, stay apart from one another for too long except for a period of mutual fasting. And there, there are, are reasons why a couple would do such a thing. Well, so there is, it's not that when you fast, nobody can know about it. I mean, you know, what do you do? Sit at your dinner table and refuse to eat? And your wife is like, why won't you eat your dinner? And well, I can't tell you. It's a secret between me and God, right? I mean, that's nonsense, right? That's ridiculous. So it's not that you never tell anybody, but it's not a show. It's not a display for everyone to see. So the idea that this practice, the, the way it's described is traceable to the New Testament, really is just an argument that doesn't hold any water. Because the way the New Testament talks about fasting is a very different thing than what is presented in Lent. The second one, the second faulty presupposition is that 40 days of Christian devotion is enough. 40 days of Christian devotion is sufficient to please God. Well, now obviously there are those that would observe Lent that would agree that one should be devoted to the Lord year-round. Obviously, there are some that think that. But for most, Lent is observed as a means of making up for the other 325 days that I'm not serving the Lord. It's like, I don't care anything about God for 325 days. I'm just going to go on Ash Wednesday, get some ashes, and you know, do my thing for 40 days, let everybody know I'm doing my thing for 40 days, and you know, I'm good for the year. And I've, I've, I've put my time in to serve God. Well, 
If you celebrate Lent with that kind of presupposition, uh, I mean, that obviously, uh, I think to anyone who is born again and knows the Lord, understands that that kind of presupposition is, is wrong. Maybe there's few uh, that would look at it from that perspective, but I guarantee that there are some. The third presupposition is one that really is much more subtle and much more serious, and that is the presupposition that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Because in Lent, the whole point of Lent, as it's observed nowadays, is to give up something, to give up some worldly pleasure, to give up some luxury, to give up some physical thing and replace it with some more beneficial spiritual thing. But at its foundation is really this presupposition that that physical thing that I'm giving up is somehow bad, and the thing I'm replacing it with is somehow good. Well, what that is is really just the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy that really reared its head in the later part of the first century. We, there are some Gnostic uh, elements that Paul and Peter are dealing with in the New Testament. But Gnosticism had various teachings to it, but one of them was really that presupposition that whatever's physical is bad and whatever's spiritual is good. Gnostics denied the true deity of Christ, uh, the true deity of Jesus, because Jesus was a man. And because he was a man, he had a physical body. And because he had a physical body, a physical body is corrupt by nature of it being physical. And so, so there's no way that the spiritual God could ever join himself to the physical because the physical is bad and the spiritual is good and good and bad don't mix. And so they really denied the deity of Christ. They denied that God could be in the flesh because the flesh is bad. Well, so Gnosticism is, is, was, is a serious heresy. But there's in some ways this unspoken acknowledgement that whatever they have given up, chocolate, dessert, you know, whatever, coffee, whatever. Um, they're giving up something that is bad so they can replace it with something that is good. And by giving up this bad thing, they get more of God's approval. God is pleased with them for giving up this bad thing and replacing it with this good thing. The fourth faulty presupposition is that somehow suffering is the key to a closer relationship with God. And that's a faulty presupposition. They believe that, in essence, by denying themselves of some pleasure, uh, that they will get God's attention and that God will be more favorably disposed to them because of their sacrifice, because of their suffering. Now, does God bring suffering into our lives to draw us closer to himself? Absolutely, 100%. God does that. He does that often. He brings suffering into our lives. He brings hardship. He brings trials, tribulations to us for the purpose of drawing us closer to him. But the point is God does that. God is the one who does that in his time and for his length of time, whether it be for a day or whether it be for decades, God does that. But God does not call on us to suffer simply for suffering's sake. We we are told in Scripture to 
deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow the Lord. But that's not the same thing as purposefully taking up suffering and misery simply for the sake of suffering and misery. You know, back in medieval times, you know, I mean, there's still monks, but, you know, monk times and all this, um, people would go on fasts for days and days and weeks and weeks. And there were some monks that would um, erect a tower and they'd sit up on top of this tower or they would go out in asceticism and way out into the wilderness and they would live in a cave and solitude and, and confinement. And they were doing that so that they could suffer for the Lord. They were removing all earthly pleasures and goods and suffering for Jesus' sake. Well, the Bible never calls us to do anything like that. We're not to suffer simply for the sake of suffering. And, and it's not that we're, we're doing something to get God's attention. I chuckled to myself as I was writing my notes for this, and I thought about that episode of Andy Griffith. I think most of you will know what I'm talking about when I start explaining the episode. But there's a bad kid that is new to town, who always gets his way with his dad by pitching these temper tantrums. And he teaches Opie how he can pitch temper tantrums to get his way. And so Opie goes into the um, courthouse there, and there's Andy sitting in his desk, and Opie asks for something, and Andy tells him no. And so Opie well, holds his breath, you know, does all this, and um, you know, Andy asks him what he's doing, and Opie immediately stops and just says, I'm, I'm holding my breath. And Andy's response is, oh, okay. And so Opie doesn't get his way. And so then he looks at his dad and he realizes, well, holding my breath's not going to work. So he falls down in the floor and he starts kicking and screaming and falling in the floor, you know, kicking and screaming his arms and legs. And Andy says, well, Opie, what are you doing now? And so Opie stops and just looks at him and he says, I'm having a temper tantrum, Paul. And Andy says, well, okay, just don't get your clothes dirty. Right? And, and, you know, that's it. It's like, it is... He ignored him, right? And, you know, what's God doing up in heaven? You know, here's this goofball not eating steak because he thinks I'm going to like him better because he's not eating a steak tonight. You know, that's nuts, right? It's crazy. I don't think God says that's nuts, but you know what I mean. I don't mean to be irreverent by that. But, you know, we're not getting God's attention. We're not getting God's favor by, you know, suffering just for the sake of suffering. And then the fifth presupposition that kind of everything kind of builds up to, to this one is this presupposition that somehow God approves of me because of my works. The very practice of Lent is wrought full of uh, the theology of a works-based righteousness before God. Uh, it is at its very foundation, right? So the presupposition behind Lent is that God will like me more if I do something good for him. And it breeds hypocrisy. It breeds a, a pharisaical spirit in it. You can just imagine a conversation that would go something like this. Two workers, two co-workers, you know, show up at work and both of them have, you know, their ashes on their forehead. And the one co-worker says to the other one, what did you give up for Lent? And the person says, well, I gave up desserts. And the person says, oh, wow, that's great. And then the question, what did you give up for Lent? And the response is, well, I gave up coffee. 
And the person that gave up dessert says out loud, oh, wow, I don't think I could ever give up coffee. And then the person who gave up coffee thinks to themselves, well, that's not that hard for me. I mean, I could give up coffee and dessert. And so then they're sitting in their cubicle. Wow, I gave up something that's really hard. I gave up something better than what he gave up. I gave up more. I give up dessert too. I'll give up both. And how good will I be? Right? This is this thinking that goes on. And really it's just an idea of works righteousness. That somehow the more I can do for the Lord or the more I can afflict myself or the more punishment that I can take on myself, then the more God will like me and I will be in good favor and good graces with the God of heaven. So those are some faulty presuppositions. Obviously, there are more and there are others. Now, to finish up here, I do assume, and we have to believe, that there are some conscientious believers who have a real heartfelt devotion to God. They truly love the Lord, and they can set aside 40 days, and they can pray, and they can fast, and they can not make a big deal about it. They don't tell anybody. It's private with them and their family, whatever. And they, they understand that their standing is in Christ and they're not blessed because of their works. This, this is not a means of becoming more righteous. This isn't a means of some greater acceptance with God. Uh, this is just in my own heart. I, I want to focus my attention on the Lord and just serve him. And I want to I want for 40 days to just put these distractions aside. So no social media, I'm not going to have dessert, I'm not going to, you know, whatever. I'm, I just want to f- spend this time and focus on the Lord. Can that be done? Well, I think obviously. Sure it can. And so that's why I, begin, I began by reading this passage in Romans 14. What should our opinion be to those that practice Lent? I have to be honest I think this is my cynicism. I'm skeptical, right? Because anybody that I hear practicing Lent, I think, well, you don't understand justification. That's my first thought. And maybe that's just my uh, cynicism uh, bubbling over. But at the same time, there can be that conscientious soul that truly wants to focus on the Lord. And if you esteem those days in, in your heart, before God is right in doing that, then the Lord bless you. But don't criticize another for not esteeming such days and having a different perspective of instead of 40 days of this kind of devotion, how about 365 of those kinds of days? Right? For, for many Christians, they have half of 52 days that they spend in devotion to the Lord. So half of 52 is 26, right? So for for many Christians, they only have what amounts to 26 days of devotion. Um, So 40 is better than that, but what is the the goal? What is the end goal? And that's, that's what I would ask your friend if someone asks you about Lent. What are you trying to accomplish 
by observing these 40 days? Are you trying to accomplish a better relationship with God because God will approve of you more for what you've done? If that's the case, it's just a pursuit of works righteousness. If, if it is truly a, you know, I want to focus my attention for this season of time and really develop a closer walk with the Lord, the Lord bless you and all the best to you. Um, but that's a very brief survey of Lent. So we'll close there. And let's close in prayer here together. Our Father, we come before you this morning with uh, an expressed desire in our heart that we do want to be devoted to you. And we want to be devoted in such a way that is real. And we don't want to pursue that just simply through superstition or uh, formalism or some kind of ritual. But what we really desire is a work of grace in our heart to draw us nearer to you day by day. And so we pray that you would work that by your spirit. And we would even ask that through the worship service this morning that it would be a means to that end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.